know him. Stop and ask that question. I hope today stirs that in you just a little bit. Lord, speak. We're listening. Amen. The year was 1926. A little boy named Johnny Sylvester was kicked in the head by a horse. It was a tragedy, and what made matters even worse is that the wound became so infected that doctors warned the parents there was very little chance of Johnny surviving. But Johnny had a, had a dying wish. He said, I, I, I wish that I could see Babe Ruth wallop a home run before I die. His parents took it seriously. They, they wired the great slugger of, of the New York Yankees, and sure enough, they got a, a reply. The Sultan of Swap, Swat would indeed hit a home run for Johnny in the very next game. Johnny instantly became one of the most famous boys in all of baseball history. Not only did the great Bamboni hit one home run that game, he hit three. And to top it all off, he took time out of his schedule to go and visit little Johnny in the hospital. But the rest of the story is even better because Johnny went on to recover from that injury and lived to a ripe age of 74. I love it. Here lies the bones of Mary Jones, for of life she had no terrors. She lived without risk. She died without risk. No runs, no hits, no errors. Tragedy. Victory on one side, tragedy on the other side. I want to talk to you through the word today here in 1 Samuel 31 about epitaph. How will your epitaph read? And in that, I hope to point you to at least three epitaphs today. An epitaph of a king, King Saul, an epitaph of Jesus Christ our Lord, and I hope I can get you to consider your own epitaph. And when I think about epitaphs, I just have to go to Pastor George Vokes. How many of you, when you hear that name, Pastor George, puts a smile on your face, huh? <laughs> yeah, gotta, gotta love that guy for years. I mean, he was a retired, spirit-filled Lutheran pastor, and for years he would sit on the front row of the church just, just cheering me on, always had an encouraging word. He'd say things like, most preach because they need to say something, but you preach because you have something to say. <laughs> just an encourager. So I would give him the epitaph, the joyful encourager. I wanted to give him the epitaph, Joyful Conqueror, because he used to sing this song. I'm a conqueror, victorious, I'm reigning with Jesus. And it always comes to mind. But I thought uh, that Joyful Encourager fit better as I prayed about it. Another person I think of is Carl Waldeck. Carl Waldeck was a retired CIA agent, and he would often tell me, I really believe God's going to do something amazing in this church. He said, what disappoints me, however, is that I don't think I'm going to be around long enough to see it happen. Wow, thank God for, for Carl Waldeck. And though many people may think of him as having been an old codger, I have to stand to his defense and say, Carl Waldeck ended really well. Uh, I would give him the name in his last days or, or write this epitaph calling him Gentle Warrior, Carl Waldeck, CIA agent. 
Well, King Saul's epitaph didn't fare quite so well. I believe he sums it up himself pretty well over in 1 Samuel chapter 26, where he says these words, I have played the fool. Wow, Saul, the one who played the fool. But, but hold on a minute. I mean, this is the guy who was once the pick of the litter, the creme de la creme, the apple of one's eye. He's the tall, dark, handsome one who stood at least a head height, head height taller than anybody else. He was once a mighty king. What happened? What happened to King Saul? Well, it's really defined in those words, fool. He played the part of the fool. The Bible defines fool in Psalm 14, verse 1, Psalm 53, verse 1, where it says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And and we're not talking God small g here. We're talking God big g, Elohim, mighty God, creator of heaven and earth. But I need you to notice that it doesn't say the fool says with his mouth, there is no God. It says with his heart. I mean, to speak it with your mouth would be a foolish thing to do, but this is about matters of the heart. Saul said with his mouth he believed in God, but everything about his history and his story says otherwise. He did things for God, as if we could ever do something for God. What are you going to do for God, huh? What are you going to do for God today? just doesn't happen. He did things for God, but he did them without God. In other cases, he flat out disobeyed God and then tried to cover it up with his lies. In other cases, he even fought against God. And then worse, he rejected godly counsel in order to seek the wisdom that he needed from a spiritist. Oh my goodness. What we could call Saul is a practical atheist. Practical atheist. Practical atheist. The the ability to say with your mouth you believe in God, but everything about your life says otherwise. And, And in saying that, Saul is not alone because it's anyone who says, I believe in God, but fails to walk it out in any practical way. It includes things like no love for God's people, no desire to be around God's people. It includes Carrying anxiety instead of stopping to pray and recognize God's hand in everything. It's about taking matters into our own hands instead of entrusting them to God, believing that God really does care about life and circumstances even more than we do. It's about looking to anything else first, but looking to God as kind of a last resort or maybe just a novel idea. It intrigues me as a pastor how often when I tell people I will pray and they'll give me a chuckle or a laugh in response. Like, sure, go ahead. What do I have to lose? Oh, my goodness. I mean, what really blesses me is when a couple comes up with their baby and says, We're struggling. Can we pray for our young son? Yes. Yes, God answers prayer. Let's pray and let's keep praying and believing. Practical atheists is saying that we love God whom we can't see, but at the same time not loving our neighbor whom we can see, and in fact our neighbor who is created in the very image of God. 
practical atheists. Jesus said these words, These people worship me with their mouths, but their hearts are far from me. That's King Saul, and that's the definition of a fool. But you know, honestly, to some degree, it describes every one of us, and every one of us needs to be tweaked on this journey. This is not where I want to live, and I have a hunch this is not where you want to live either. First uh, First Chronicles chapter 10, verse 13, articulates Saul just a little bit more in everything I've been saying. I have to read it to you so you can hear it for yourself. When it says, Saul died, Saul died for his unfaithfulness, which he had committed against the Lord, because he did not keep the word of the Lord, and also because he consulted a medium, medium for guidance. But he did not inquire of the Lord, therefore he, the Lord, killed him and turned the kingdom over to David, the son of Jesse. David, the son of Jesse, to become king. This is a good day. But Saul, he played the part of the fool, and the result is he died a tragic death. So this sets us up now for 1 Samuel chapter 31. I hope you're there in your Bibles because I just want to highlight some things, and I hope you'll look at these scriptures later just to confirm every word that is spoken because here we see that Israel is in a fierce battle against one of their most notorious enemies, the, the Philistines. And because of unfaithfulness, Israel is losing at this point. Many Israelites are dead. The rest are fleeing. So what the Philistines are doing now is they're honing in. They want to find the king, and they want to find the king's son. And they do. In this, David's best friend, Jonathan, hunted, and he's killed along with his brothers. The king, King Saul, it's amazing how the Bible describes this. He's hit by a random arrow, kind of just one shot in the air that finds a chink in his armor and and it penetrates and pierces deep. So he calls to his armor bearer and he says, run me through, kill me, lest these Philistines find me and torture me before they put me to death. And when the armor bearer refused to lend a hand, King Saul fell on his own sword and he's dead. Philistines find his body, they cut off his head, they strip him of his armor, they announce their victory to the world, and then they hang him on a wall at a place called Beth Shan. Today it's called Tel Beth Shan. I brought an image of it. I want you to, to see this. It's kind of dark. Let's see, this picture over here is a little better. Notice the Roman ruins in the foreground. This is a fascinating place to walk through. Of course, Roman history is much later than what we're talking about today. But this is just as awesome as anything you'll ever see in Rome. And and some of you have experienced it. It's in the foreground there. But do you see that hill in the background? That's Tel Bethshan. Okay, back then it was called Bethshan. Today it's called Tel Bethshan. Why is that? It's because these hills are formed when one society is conquered And then another society, the conquering society, comes and dumps dirt over it and then builds builds another society on top of it. Archaeologists love this stuff. Sometimes they can dig down and find as many as six or seven different cultures, one built upon another. 
Okay, so this is Bethshan, this is Tel Bethshan, and this is the place where Saul's body was hung. This is so valuable for me to be able to show this to you because what it says is this thing is real, this thing is real. See, we're not telling stories here. This is history. And while the teachers in your colleges and schools might want to call the Bible a bunch of stories, it's not. It's history. It's documented every day. You can read archaeological reports and find things about new evidence uncovered that support the scriptures. We're not just playing games here. We're seeing God's hand in history so that you can see God's hand in your your life. But what's happening here is, is tragic. Saul's story didn't have to end this way, and the Bible is clear. He died the way he did because of his foolishness. His foolishness resulted in compromise, resulted in in disobedience, led to a life of mediocrity that ended with guilt, despair, and bitterness. That's the path Saul chose in living the life of a practical atheist. I don't want to end there. And I realize every day that I have the capacity of forgetting who God is and just walking in a form of religion and in the course of it, missing God in relationship, God in the walk, God in the garden, God with me. And I want you to know that as well. Not a form of religion, but taking God by the hand. Yeah, and walking with him. Yeah. But as tragic as as Saul's death is, there's some really incredible analogy that we can glean here. And so I'm going to take everything I've presented to you to this point, and I want to begin to make some contrasts. I want to look at Saul's death. I want to look at Jesus' death. And in that, I hope the Holy Spirit will prompt you to consider your life and how your story will unfold and be told. That's where we're going next. Okay, so the first thing I noticed, and the first two of these sound kind of dark, but then they turn a corner, and, and it get, I think it builds and gets better and better and better. So the, the first thing we see here is the death of hope. If you have your Bibles open, notice verse 7. It says that when the Israelites got word that their king had been killed, they abandoned their towns and fled. Then the Philistines moved in and began to occupy these territories. Surely this is the end of a country. Surely this is the end of God's people, Israel. Surely this is the end of hope. Now, take Jesus. When Jesus was arrested... The Bible says everyone deserted him and fled. It's in Mark chapter 14. If you go over to Luke chapter 14, you'll find that the disciples are describing Jesus' death when they say these words. We had hoped. We had hoped. We had hoped, past tense, we had hoped Jesus was the one who was going to redeem Israel. In other words, what the disciples are saying is we gave our lives to something, but it's all over. Jesus isn't going to usher in the kingdom of God like we thought he was. It was all a hoax. We were suckers, and therefore, 
we must continue to live under the oppressive hands of the Romans. Saul, death of hope. Jesus, death of hope. Second thing I notice here is that darkness wins. If you're there in 1 Samuel chapter 31, notice verses 8 through 10. The Philistines here represent darkness. Israel represents light. Now darkness is marching in triumph, displaying the heads of Saul and his sons while hanging their bodies on a wall for all to see. Darkness is dancing in the street. We won. Darkness rules. The God of the Jews is dead. It's all over. Then you cross-reference this over to Matthew, and, and he makes the following observation about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. This is from Matthew chapter 27, when the Bible says, From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over, how much? All the land. So for a short time, it appeared that the enemy of our souls has won. I mean, you could imagine Satan and all the fallen angels of heaven dancing with him and celebrating, declaring evil wins. Victory is ours. The Messiah, the hope of the world, is dead. Hmm. Third, a new path is paved. So see, now we're starting to turn the corner right here. This gets really exciting. I hope you grasp it. I hope you understand it. It's so simple. Dear Lord, don't let me complicate what you're trying to say to us this morning. Yeah. So King Saul represents what we call human effort. Human, human effort. Up until Saul had been appointed king, Israel lived under what was called a theocracy. Theocracy. God in charge. And God always had a representative to the people, a prophet. And in this case, it's the author of the book we're studying, the prophet Samuel. But the people wanted to be like all the other nations of the world. They wanted their own king, a separate king from God. They wanted a king made out of flesh and blood. So they cried out, give us a king so we can be like everybody else. Well, God was concerned about his prophet, so he said, Samuel, it's not you they're rejecting. It's, it's me they're rejecting. So go ahead and give them what they want, but let them know that this king will not be and will not serve in their best interests. And man, does this apply to where we live today because still in our world, people are looking for those leaders who will make their lives easier. This is how the Antichrist and the false prophet are going to raise, rise up to power is because people are looking to the wrong things for their hope. We need to put our hope in God and not the person who's sitting in the White House. Yeah, I mean, we pray for our leaders, right? But our hope isn't in our Social Security system, our health care system, right? Our hope is in the Lord. Okay, but back to our story. The preacher's getting a little bit uh, sidetracked there, right, on politics. See, what's going on here is it's a new day. The people's king is dead, which opens the door for God's man to take public office. Here's David. David's not in the proper line to the, the kingship, but he will be the man who moves into kingship and makes way for the ultimate king, 
the king who will lay down his life as a ransom for many. Jesus Christ, where human kings fail, God's ways prevail. It's an open door for new opportunities. But there's a fourth one that I see here, and, and that is that previous, previously closed doors are now open. You see, I, I started to get there a little bit in the previous point, but what's going on here is only a blood-born son of a king ever has the right to the throne in the case of the father's death. David wasn't one of King Saul's sons. He had no human right to this office, so God now has to open the door in order to pave this new path. That's what's going on here. Likewise, coming back to Jesus, there was a day when non-Jews were considered unworthy of the kingdom of God. That's most of us in this room. We're not of the proper bloodline. But by victory over death, the Bible says, and now I'm over here in Galatians chapter 3. I want you to see it. Verse 26, in Christ, we all can become children of God when we put our faith in him. There is no longer any distinction between a Jew or a non-Jew. We all belong to Christ. We all can be a part of Abraham's bloodline and an heir or heirs according to promise because of what Jesus Christ did for us. New pass. Thank God for that. Fifth, just going through these quickly, kind of exciting stuff here. Dissatisfaction and failure are dismantled. See, what this is about, what Saul does is he points us to law. Saul points us to human effort. Saul points us to, 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 to our ability to be good enough. And, and many in this room, I dare say, argue I'm good enough. Many of the people you care about say I'm good enough. I don't need Jesus, right? I'm good enough, and by doing so, they stomp on Jesus' life, they stomp on Jesus' death, and participate in the crucifixion. They're enemies of God. But we don't look at them with judgment, we look at them with mercy, because we want their hearts and their eyes to be open to say, I can't be good enough, I need a Savior. Is that anybody's story but mine? Has anybody here ever tried to live according to a righteous standard and, and suddenly felt like, man, I try to do the right thing, but I'm constantly doing the wrong thing. What a wretched man I am. Anybody besides me been there? Yeah, thank you. One honest person in the crowd. All right, there goes a whole bunch of people. That's right. That's what we're talking about right here. Law. Law defeats. Law frustrates. But David points us forward to the coming Savior who will be born in his bloodline. Christ's victory over death would become the end of human frustration and defeat because Christ becomes God's gift of grace. What we couldn't do, God did for us by offering his son so that he who was without sin was willing to own our sin Say, I'll take their guilt, I'll take their shame, I'll carry it myself, and I'll take it to the grave and defeat it once and for all. The Bible tells us that the law couldn't help us because our sinful nature was just way too strong. So 
God did for us what the law could never do. He sent his own son in the form of a body, just like any sinner's body. And in that body, he declared the end of sin's control over us by giving Jesus as a sacrifice in our place. And in that action, he, just, he satisfied the righteous requirements of the law so that by faith in Christ, we no longer live to satisfy the flesh, which is so insatiable. You can't satisfy. It's just hungry, hungry. Feed me. Feed me. It starts off really small. Feed me. Feed me. Then it gets to its teenage voice that I can't seem to shake even at 58 years of age because I keep squeaking when I speak, you know. Feed me, feed me. And then it matures, feed me, feed me, and it gets bigger. Feed me, feed me, right? I mean, where once you could hand it a piece of bologna, now you're having to slaughter a horse to keep this thing satisfied. That's the flesh, but we no longer live to satisfy the flesh because of what Jesus did. We live in the fullness of the Holy Spirit so that God gets the glory in all of our victories. <laughs> Anybody want to just give glory to God at all? Anybody grateful? So now I, I have to take this thing full circle to the sixth analogy that I see in this scripture and it has to do with this display of foolishness that we were talking about Saul's epitaph you know he played the part of the fool regardless of what he may have said with his mouth every action of his life said otherwise there is no God and if it's to be it's up up to me honestly that was his default mode that's where he always went in times of crisis in times of important decisions, oh, mine, 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 me, 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 what am I going to do? I need to make myself look good. I need my followers to like me. And most of us here, that's our primary ambition. People need to like me. How do I get them to like me? Practical atheist. Our lives are not lived for our glory, but for the glory of God. That's the distinguishing factor. You're not your own. You're his, a creation of his hand, so that everybody can see the display of his wonder and the display of his majesty. You're fearfully and wonderfully made a testimony of the creative God so that there's no comparison in one person to the next. We all look different. And one person is just as funny looking as the next. Yeah. You know what the Bible says about the natural human response to Christ's death on the cross? I want you to see it here in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. It says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. And if you understand this, it's not because of book knowledge. It's not because some human being revealed it to you. It's because God himself revealed it to you. And you don't boast. You don't put yourself on a superior level because you understand and somebody else doesn't. No, your heart's motivation because of the Spirit is in you is you want everybody to know him like you've come to know him. Don't give me credit, but if you see anything, 
Let it point you to him. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Oh, man, today I talked to a person who we prayed for that is delivered from drug addiction, okay? And I know that determination won't keep that person in victory. Only one thing will keep that person in victory. And that's why you see on our banners out here, all eyes on Jesus, right? Set your affections there. Keep looking to Jesus. Keep looking to Jesus. And those who are filled with the Spirit understand the death of Christ is our hope of life. Isn't this perfect for the Lenten season? I just give glory to God for the way he gives words. Saul's epitaph, he played the fool. Jesus' epitaph, he died enough. He loved, he loved enough to die in our place. Consider your own epitaph. And as you consider it, I want to invite you into a party that I'm personally living in right now. We as a church are called to love Estes Park and beyond. That's, that's what we're called to. We will not be practical atheists. We won't be the kind of people who speak, we believe in God with our mouths, but we have no practical evidence of that. We will be the real deal. And it begins in knowing his love, walking in the fullness and power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. It begins in this miracle of loving God's people, the church, as messed up as God's people, the church, are, knowing that they are among the graciously redeemed, and it manifests itself in our love for others, loving us to spark and beyond. I want to invite you to join me on this journey. Let it be a part of your story, too. Let it be a part of our story, but let it be a part of your story as well. But in that, I have to ask, do you know him? Or do you know of him? If I were to ask you, have you ever known a real Christian? Who would you point to? And would anybody point to you? Do you know him? Do you know him to your core? Do you know him down deep? Has yours become a life of worship so that the word of God is clear and makes sense, but it's manifest in how you respond to the person ahead of you in the line at Safeway? Huh? To the person who can't figure out that self-checkout thing there right yeah 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 that's practical let's go there and, and even further it begins when we come to this place of realizing hold on a minute I, somehow I'm doing this assessment in my soul and I'm realizing I'm kind of the the one calling the shots in my life I mean, I'm the master here of my life, and it's not playing out very well. And if there is a God in heaven, then I surely had, been, had better surrender to his plan. That's what we call repentance. It's a turnaround. It's saying, hey, I don't want to do life my way. I want to learn to do life God's way. I love uh, 2 Corinthians 
chapter 5, where it says that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone. And behold, all things have become new. All of this is done by Christ, who transformed us from his enemies into his friends and then gave us the task of making others his friends also. How's that for an epitaph? Not a practical atheist, but across your gravestone, in your obituary, he, she, made friends for Jesus. I like it. Let's pray. I'm going to invite the worship team to come. Take time and consider your life and your story in light of what we've seen this morning. And any areas that God is highlighting, are you willing to, to turn around, commit those things to him, and get your eyes on him? What is the Spirit of the Lord saying to you this morning? And how will you respond?